So several years ago, um, I was a youth director at a different church, and it was our fall retreat, our high school fall retreat. And it was Saturday night, and we were out in the woods in this, um, at this fire pit, this, this kind of cool fire pit. We had some worship time, and we were now just kind of hanging out and roasting marshmallows and just having a good time, probably like 25, 30 high schoolers. Uh, hanging out at this retreat. And then all of a sudden, up the path to where we were, we saw these kind of flashlights moving down the path and hearing this like, like radio noise. And into the clearing comes two police officers. And they say, is there a Tracy here? Um, Now, here's what you need to know. There was a girl in our youth group named Tracy. She was a scholar-athlete, straight-A, straight-laced, wonderful young lady of God. And if you could have picked any kid in any of my youth groups that the police would show up and go for, it was never going to be Tracy. (laughs) But here came the police for Tracy, and I thought, oh, my goodness. And everyone, everyone knew how crazy it was, so we started laughing, right? Like, what's happening? And so I walk over, and I grab Tracy, and we we go over to, to where the police are standing. And I say, yes, officer, this is Tracy. Is there a problem? And they look at her very sternly, and they say, you did not text your parents when you got to camp. (laughs) And uh, Tracy had driven herself up late to the retreat that day, and she was supposed to text her parents when she got there, but we have a no cell phone rule. She was actually being pretty obedient. She had put her cell phone in her glove compartment and not texted her parents, which sent them immediately into DEFCON 1, right? They called literally every police department between our home and this retreat center and said, our daughter's missing. And there was this massive manhunt through northern Illinois looking for Tracy until these cops decided, you know what, let's just make sure she's not there. And they show up later that night as we're around the campfire. And so, and you know, we're kind of laughing. And so they radio in, she's actually at camp, she's fine. Um, and I did whatever, what, you know, any self-respecting youth director would do. I looked at them, I said, could you please put her in handcuffs so we can take a picture? <laughs> and they said, of course. <laughs> and so we put her in handcuffs. We posed her for pictures with the cops. Um, we posed the entire youth group for pictures with the cops. Um, they toasted some marshmallows and they left. Um, <laughs> Uh, nothing, nothing, uh, you know, kind of throws parents into a panic more than wondering where their kid is, right? Like, it, Tracy's parents had had a pretty reasonable reaction. They were scared. They were worried. Where is their daughter? What has happened? And so their reaction was to call out any piece of support they could to find their missing child. Um, this is the story we're going to look at today. And we're going to be in Luke 2, and we're going to look at a story of another missing child. And what's going to happen? How are we going to find him? You know, we're in this series we're calling Epiphany Plus. So we're looking at kind of these stories that start with Epiphany, and they go through the story that we're we're going to uh, end with today. And they're just the early stories from Jesus' life. We don't have very many of them. Um, As a matter of fact, up until the time of Jesus, or between Jesus' birth and the beginning of his public ministry, somewhere around age 30, this is about the only story that we have. 
And so we're going to look at it today, and we're going to look at it asking the question we've been asking throughout this series, like what does this tell us about who Jesus is? You know, epiphany is a word that means like revealing or unveiling or appearing. Uh, and, and so here, here we've seen in the arrival of the Magi, we've seen this revealing of Jesus as king of the nations. And, and in his trip to Egypt and back, we saw Jesus revealed as the true Israel, the true one through whom God's blessing will come. And today we're going to see Jesus revealed as the very son of of God. So would you read with me this morning? This is Luke chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray. Lord, would you teach us as you taught Mary and Joseph that you, uh, you are the very son of God. And when we're not sure what you're doing, we can be sure of who you are. And would you increase our faith today? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's talk really quickly about the structure of a story, and this story in particular, because it'll help us kind of dig into what's going on in this passage. Some of you guys may remember from the depths of your, um, you know, literature training that a basic story structure has to do with rising action, a climax, and falling action, right? Basic story structure, basic story structure. And that's what's kind of happening in our story today, except what we really see is we see this story is framed by, by two journeys or two descriptions of that journey. We're told that, that that Jesus and his family go up to Jerusalem, and then they're at the temple, and so they went up to Jerusalem, and then we're told at the end of the story that they went down to Nazareth or went down from Jerusalem. And we have at the climax of that journey, in the beginning and end, if you notice, we have the climax, we have this revealing, this conversation. Really what the climax is, is this, these questions that get asked between Mary and Jesus. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at going up to Jerusalem. We're going to look at the conversations that happen in that temple. And we're going to look at as they leave. And what we're going to see is that Jesus enters this story. He's never said a word before as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. He's never been an actor himself. He's always kind of been dragged along by his parents. And that something's going to happen up here at this climax so that when they leave, that now it's Jesus who is going with them. Now it's Jesus who's speaking, and now it's going to be Jesus' story, not Mary and Joseph's story, 
but Jesus' story that Luke is going uh, to be following. So that's going to be our structure, how we're going to look at the story today. Let's go ahead and look at this rising action as things start. We see that Luke sets us up with the rising action, and he says, here's what's happening. Um, the family is heading to Jerusalem for Passover. The um, uh, Jewish males of Jesus' day were required to attend three festivals in Jerusalem in person, and Passover was the most important one, and typically kind of by, by this time, if you could only attend one Passover, the was the one you were going to, and because it was such a a big deal, it was a seven-day celebration, although some people didn't stay all seven days, they would go together, and they would make, uh, people would make their trip from all over the the area to to Jerusalem. Did you go on family trips when you were a kid? We used to load up our big, big um, blue station wagon that had like the back door that swung open like this, and in the back back, it had the two seats that like folded up and faced each other. bench seats all the way across. I don't I mean, you must have been able to fit a million things in there. And I remember as a kid, we'd load up the, you know, that igloo with like any kind of like juice boxes and things we were allowed to have and like the snacks. You remember the little cans of cheese balls with like the yellow top, you know, and I literally, I have no idea how our parents managed three children in the back of a station wagon for a 12 hour drive to Michigan. I mean, they're saints. I can't remember what we did. (laughs) Like we must have been menaces, but we got there, right? And so there's a little bit of that vibe happening in this story. They're going on a family trip. They're going, they're going to celebrate. This, is, this has been the closest that people in Jesus' day get to vacation. So here's the rising action. They're headed, they're headed to Jerusalem. Um, the journey is about 80 miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem. And if, if you're going around Samaria, it's, it's about 80 miles. And so that means it's about a three or four day trip. If you can, you know, it would make about 20 to 25 miles a day. And so it's about a three to four day trip. Can you imagine? <laughs> On foot. And they would go in large groups. They go in large caravans because there were parts of the trip that were dangerous. There were parts where there literal highway robbers may be there, and so they would travel as a group, and they'd go together, and they've come to Jerusalem um, for, this, um, for this celebration. And so, um, and we're told it is time to go. So we don't have any record of what happened in the festival other than it's time to go. And we just have this little line here. Did you notice it? And as they're returning, we're told the boy Jesus remained. The boy Jesus remained. You guys, I just, like, there's places in the scripture, I'm like, could you tell me more? (laughs) Like, I want to know, was he being sneaky? Like, was he being like Kevin McAllister in Home Alone and like, you know, like trying to sneak around and hide out and like, you know, dodging one parent here and dodging a parent there? Or was he just distracted and he just missed everyone going? Or did he intentionally know what he was doing? All we know is that somehow Jesus made a choice. To, he stays in Jerusalem, and, and his parents should be forgiven. We, we do wrong if we think that they've been neglectful, or we do wrong if they're, 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 you know, we think that somehow Mary and Joseph are bad parents. They're not, right? Because here's the thing. Jesus is Jesus, right? He's never given them any reason to suspect he would disobey them, right? <laughs> he's Jesus, right? He hasn't made any mistakes. He's not, he's not that kind of kid. And by the way, because of the way that they traveled, it would have been natural for Jesus to have been many places. So uh, typically when they travel in a caravan, most scholars think that the women and the children would go in front and the men behind. But because Jesus is 12 years old, he's right on the cusp of being a child or a man. And so Mary could have assumed that Jesus was walking in the back with, with Joseph. Or Joseph could have assumed that Jesus was walking in the front with Mary. And somehow they get a whole day's journey down the road. Can't you imagine that moment? 
Can't you imagine that moment when, when it's time for them to stop now, to stop for the night and rest, and here they're, they're gathering together in their family units, and, and Mary watches Joseph walking towards her, and she can't see Jesus, and she says, hey, where's, where's Jesus? And Joseph says, what do you mean? Isn't he with you? In that moment, we've all felt, right, that, that initial kind of flash of, of worry, that feeling in your pit of your stomach something might have gone wrong. But they, don't, they don't freak out right away. We're told that they start asking around with their, to their relatives and their friends and their acquaintances, and it must have not taken very long for them to realize no one had seen Jesus all day. And that flash of panic becomes a whole wave of dread. Can't you just imagine all of a sudden, we haven't seen him all day long? Where, where could he be? Can't you imagine that layered on top of that for, for these parents, layered on top of that becomes this guilt. How, how were we not paying attention? How did I let that happen? Layered on top of that becomes this self-recrimination. I'm a terrible parent. Where could he be? What could be happening? And then you start layering on that. All the stories you're telling yourself about what could be happening to your child and what could be going on. And here's the worst part. They can't do anything yet. It's nighttime. And they can't travel. So they have to spend this sleepless night, I'm sure, worried what's happened to our child they watch the horizon and and the sun is just starting to peek out and so it's safe to go and and they take off and can't you imagine what that walk is like for them all the way back are they talking are they trying to figure things out are they totally silent both of them lost in their own worry and their own anxiety and their own super super scared dread what has happened to our child they got to make it 20 miles all the way back to the city. And can't they just be thinking, can't, can't they be thinking, what if I see a clue? What if he's somewhere along the road? What if we find him? What if we don't find him? What if they're stopping and asking all the passers-by, have you seen a 12-year-old boy? Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen him? And they're, they're asking, and, and it's building, it's building, and that fear and that, that, that panic. And now they've arrived in Jerusalem, and where are they going to go to find him? It's a massive city. It was the biggest city in their region. It's like saying you left your kid behind in Chicago. So they go to the, undoubtedly, probably went to the place they stayed. You know, who were the people they stayed with? He's not there. They go to the courtyard where he played games with the kids. They can't find him. They go to the place where they've celebrated the Passover meal. They can't find him. Where could he be? And finally, who knows, Joseph says to Mary, or Mary says to Joseph, I guess we could check the temple. And they walk up all the stairs up into the the temple mount and they start looking around it's a large place and gathered under these porches and under these kind of porticos would be gatherings of teachers um, who've sat down with their students and and they're having conversations about God's word and God's law and they're tossing ideas around this is how teaching happened in that day the smartest religious leaders the smartest people in the entire nation here they are they would be found in the temple having these conversations and and around the corner come Mary and Joseph and there they finally see him after 3 days apart And and what's happening is Jesus is holding his own. 
We're told in the passage, you see it, that the, that the people are amazed. The people who have gathered are amazed at the way that he asks questions and the way that he answers questions. They can't believe the insight and the depth of understanding that he has about who God is and about God's word and about God's law. And they just, they, they're just so, they're just like totally amazed is a word that Luke uses over and over throughout his gospel to describe when God is at work. And here come Mary and Joseph, and can't you imagine the relief that floods through them now? They see their son. And we've reached the moment of climax. We've reached this moment where this key, this key conversation is going to happen. Well, let's set the scene. We're told back, uh, back in the scripture, we're told in verse 46, after three days they found him, he was sitting with the, with the leaders. In verse 40, um, 48, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. They were astonished. It's a strong word. It's actually a synonym for um, kind of knocking something over with a blow. Scripture's literally saying they're thunderstruck. They're like, they're like knocked out. They can't believe it. Like, what are they seeing? And what that implies to us is that they would have never expected to see Jesus here doing what he's doing. Right? There's something about, about who Jesus was that had never clued them in that he would be found sitting and talking with these people, these experts, and holding forth an amazing everyone. You know, they're just from rural Nazareth. And here they find their 12-year-old hanging out with religious leaders and amazing them with his conversation. You know, it'd be like you taking a trip to Boston with your 12-year-old daughter and she disappears from you and you go looking and looking and looking and you find her in the philosophy department at Harvard um, holding her own with the profs and the grad students, right? That's the kind of astonishment you would have. And this is where they find Jesus. And Mary asks a question. Look back down with me at verse 48. It says that Mary says to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Jesus, she says, why did you do this to us? We've been looking all over for you. We've been freaking out. You know, her question is one that's born of a lot of anxiety. It's been born of like, you know, two plus days of total panic. Of course they've been worried. No doubt she and Joseph have been imagining worst case scenarios. Of course she's in distress. The word here, great distress, is an unusually strong word. It only appears two other times in the whole Bible, both of them by Luke. Here's when that word great distress appears. It appears in Acts, when Luke tells us about Paul leaving his friends in Ephesus. And they're standing on the, on the shore and he's about to head to Jerusalem and everyone knows this was probably going to be the end of his life and they're never going to see each other again in the way that Luke describes the feeling between these friends, knowing they're never going to be together again, is great distress. The other word, uh, the other place that word appears is later in the Gospel of Luke as Jesus is telling a parable uh, about a rich man and a, and a poor man named Lazarus. And the rich man is in a fiery afterlife. And he looks up at Lazarus and he says, can't you see I'm in agony and that's our same word here for great distress. The implication in Mary's words, she says, Jesus, don't you know 
Your father and I have been going through hell. Don't you know how hard this has been? Mary's question is, why have you done this to us? Don't you know we've been in agony looking all over for you? Seems like a statement I can imagine many parents could say. I imagine maybe even many parents have said to their own child, why, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> right? That particular pain that comes with having a child you're desperately worried about. The particular pain that comes with having a child who seems to have disregard for your feelings and your expectation. But of course, this is a question that, that not just parents ask. This is a question we all ask. I think most of us, if we're honest, we know what it is to look at Jesus and say, why are you doing this to me? We know what it is to look back at God and say, God, don't you know how much pain you're causing me? Don't you know that this thing you've allowed to be in my life is tearing me apart? Don't you know that you're asking me to walk through hell? And in Mary's question is a question so many of us ask. God, why? Why are you letting this be true of my life? And so Jesus' response becomes not just important to Mary and Joseph, but it becomes critically important for you and I. Because we ask this question too. And Jesus responds with his own question. In verse 49, Jesus says, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? You know, we hear that and we think maybe Jesus is being a little salty or a little sassy. Why were you looking for me, right? Um, that's, that's not it at all. There's a gentleness and a wisdom and a depth to Jesus' response. This phrase, why are you looking, is Jesus saying, you didn't have to worry. You didn't have to worry. You should have known you could come right here How many other places had Mary and Joseph searched? How many places had they gone looking and yet Jesus says, look, you didn't have to look for me. Like, like you didn't need to worry. I'm right where you could have expected me to be. Jesus' response is critical because his response, if Mary's question is a question of anxiety and agony, Jesus' response is a response of identity and mission. Jesus knows who he is. He's God's son. This is a statement of intimacy for him to say, didn't you know I'd have to be here in my father's house, here at the temple, here in this place that represents God's work and presence in the world? Wouldn't you know that this is where I was going to be? What Jesus is saying, he's saying, I am most at home right here. Wouldn't you know to come look for me in the place that is my home, the place where God is? And so God isn't just Jesus' father in the same way he's all of our fathers. There's, some, there's an intimacy implied here. And so Jesus' answer to Mary's question, like, why have you allowed this? Jesus' answer is really, don't you remember who I am? Don't you remember what family I'm really a part of? You know, Mary and Joseph, they should have remembered. 
Jesus' response here, that you is plural. He said, why were you guys looking for me? Both of them should have remembered. Mary could remember the announcement of Gabriel to her. When the angel comes and says, Mary, you're going to have a child, and his name's going to be Jesus, and he's going to be holy. Oh, and by the way, he's going to be the what? Son of God. And an angel came to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, don't be afraid to marry Mary because the Holy Spirit is at work and she's going to give birth to a child who is my son who's going to save his people. Surely, Mary and Joseph should remember what what the conversations were like between them and Elizabeth and Zechariah. Surely they would have remembered that night that he was born and the shepherds came and said, look, angels appeared to us. They told us that God is at work in your child, that God is doing something special here, that God himself is present. And so when Jesus says, didn't you know I'd have to be here in my father's house, Jesus is making a statement about who he is. His answer to all of Mary's, all of Mary's worry and concern in her complaint was to say, you didn't have to worry. I'm God. I'm God's son. He's saying, did you really think I was just a normal 12-year-old boy? You know, Mary and Joseph, like all of us, in this moment of fear and confusion and questioning, had to wrestle with who they really believed Jesus to be. In the moment of all this uncertainty, in the moment of all this churn, in the moment of all this agony, the question that comes to them, who do you really believe Jesus is? Is he just your 12-year-old? Or is he the son of God? This exchange, this central conversation is a conversation all of us have with God. We've all looked at him and said, God, why are you treating me like this? Jesus, why have you allowed this to happen? Jesus, can't you see it's all too much? Why did you make choices in my life, Jesus, that have caused me so much pain and so much agony? And no one really knows how great distress has piled up into my life. And of course, Jesus' response to all of us is, don't you remember who I am? See, the complaints and the questions of the followers of God always find their answer in the identity of God. This is frustrating for us, right? Because when we call out to God and we say, God, what are you doing? What we're really saying is, God, come fix it. I would be doing things differently if I were you, God. Don't you see, like, I I can give you four great answers to how to fix my problem right now, and you have all the power in the world, Jesus. Can't you come and do it? That's part of Mary's complaint, too. You could have chosen something different here, Jesus. You stayed behind. And yet consistently throughout the story of Scripture, God's answer to his, his friends, his close people, the people he's called to be his followers, his answer constantly when they come to him with complaint, whether it's, it's David saying, where are you, Lord? Or whether it's the psalmist crying out and saying, what has happened? Or it could be Elijah saying, God, what are you doing? It could be Jacob or Habakkuk. It could be Job himself who suffered more than anyone could imagine righteously saying to God, why have you let this happen? And God's consistent consistent reminder to them is, don't you know who I am? My ways are not your ways, says God. My thoughts are not your thoughts. 
says, God, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. Whereas Paul will say in Romans, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Who could be his counselor or who could give him advice? God's answer to us when we don't know what he's doing is to say, do you know who I am and can you trust me? Jesus says to Mary, and he says to you, I know you're hurting, but I am God, and I am here. Can you trust me? And so we have the falling action. We've reached the climax of that key conversation, and then we're told what? I love this. We're told what? Verse 50, and they didn't understand. (laughs) Can I just tell you, can you take comfort in that? They didn't get it. If you don't get it, it's okay. (laughs) Mary and Joseph didn't get it. They didn't understand. They didn't quite get what Jesus was saying here. They don't get it. It's a theme throughout the Gospel of Luke that all these people who should know better, these people who see the work of Jesus in the world, the people who hear his teaching, the people who are closest to him will constantly not understand who he is or what he's doing. One aspect of Jesus' suffering, surely, was to be surrounded by people whom he desperately loved who did not understand him. What kind of loneliness that must have brought into his life. But another piece of the falling action fascinates me. We're told what next, and that then Jesus goes down with them to Nazareth. And what? He obeys them. He enters or continues in a life of submissiveness and obedience to his parents. Don't pass this up. There's something very important here. Jesus does not treat his parents poorly even though they don't understand him, even though they've accused him of hurting them, Jesus does not treat them poorly. He doesn't look down on them. He doesn't say, oh, you guys should have known better, and now I'm not going to talk to you anymore because you missed it. Jesus, even though people constantly misunderstand him, acts with mercy and with love and with respect. Friends, someone in this room, I think, probably needs to hear exactly this. That Jesus responds to your complaint, and Jesus responds to your confusion, and Jesus responds to your questions with love and service. He meets your struggle. When you struggle with him, he meets your struggle with mercy every step of the way, even when your struggle is with him himself. The last part of the falling action is we're told that Mary treasures these things in her heart. You know, this is a direct echo of just earlier in this chapter as the shepherds leave the the manger and and they've, they've told Mary and Joseph what the angels have said and they leave and we're told what? That Mary treasures these things and ponders them in her heart. Here she does it again. Maybe a whole decade has passed. And here she is thinking again, who is this son of mine? And instead of being angry with him 
And instead of being frustrated and afraid, Mary chooses to hold this moment as precious and valuable. Mary chooses to hold this moment of confusion and question as something to be treasured, not something to be regretted. She's come to to understand that there's a treasure in the mystery of her own son. There's a treasure in the mystery of his ways and what he's doing. There's a treasure to know that he does what he does because he's following his, his Lord, his God, his Father. And even though that mystery has caused her and Joseph great pain, she considers it valuable and worthwhile. Friends, can we come to treasure the mystery of Jesus when he's not really living up to our expectations of him? When he's frustrating us, when he's causing us pain and worry and anxiety? Can those two be things that allow us to enter into the mystery of what it is to be one with God and rescued by the gift of his son? I mean, think of Mary's journey. She starts this story pretty confident that she's had a good time and she's walking up the road and Jesus is somewhere there with her. Yet all of a sudden, something happens. And she thought Jesus was there and she realizes he's not. He's gone. And into her life just rushes all of this panic and dread and fear and guilt and recriminate. Like all of this stuff comes, floods into her life. And she's like, Jesus, why are you letting this happen? And then she gets to the end of the story and she's able to say, there's something important in this about who God is. I'm going to value it and treasure it. Where are you on Mary's journey? What is it like for you right now? I know many of you in this room, maybe even most of you, in this room are in the middle of a time you could label great distress. If I'm honest, I am a little bit too. Jesus is not quite doing the things that I want him to do for me right now. Like he's not quite coming through in the ways that I would hope for him to. And I find myself constantly saying, Jesus, what are you up to here? Like what's going on? I'm trying to find you, I'm trying to listen to you. Why are you letting this difficult thing persist? And I think that his answer to my question and my confusion and his answer to your questions and your confusions is the same answer that he's given to Mary and Joseph. Remember who I am. Remember I'm the gracious, good Savior who's given himself so that you will be with me forever. So the challenge becomes for me and the challenge becomes for you. For any follower of Jesus, will we faithfully walk with him while our complaint and our fear and our dread and our agony rise up in us? And can we be comforted merely knowing that he is God? This is the essence of faith. Can you trust who God is? though you may not see what he's doing. You know, there'll be another Passover. 
There'll be another Passover and Jesus will come back to Jerusalem riding on a donkey and the people will shout Hosanna. And then just a few days later, they'll shout crucify him. And Jesus will die on the cross and his body will be taken down and he'll be laid in a tomb and then there'll be another three-day wait. In the dawning of that Easter morning, we're told that a group of women go to the tomb. You can read it in Luke 24. And among those women looking for Jesus again is his mother. Like once again, here comes Mary, like looking for her son. And they get to the tomb and it's empty. And there's some angels there and the angels say, why are you looking? Same question. Why are you looking? He said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Can't you imagine that maybe Mary filled in the blank? Don't you know Jesus has to be about his father's work? Don't you know Jesus has to be where God is leading? When you feel your agony and your pain and your questions and your distress and your anxiety well up in you. You can remember that the tomb is empty. And Jesus is doing his Father's work. And you can trust him. Let's pray. God, I do pray that your Holy Spirit would come and comfort us right now. Not with the reminder or the sense that everything's going to work out all right but simply with the reminder that you are God and that the essence of the faith you've called us to is to simply trust you, to put our trust in you when life feels upside down, when it feels like you've allowed pain and hurt to come. Might we just faithfully proclaim, we know you are God. We trust you. God, would that be increasingly true of us, your family here? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.